Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Gooden's Jewelry, Avant Garden, and Ruthette's Bridal. Each of those businesses are highlighted in the special bridal section of our January-February magazine. You can read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com, courtesy of Northwest Physicians Group. Today's guest is Mark D. Williams. Mark is a writer like me. He's published more than 20 books. He's written hundreds of articles for magazines and newspapers from Backpacker to ESPN to Brick and Elm. Um, Our current issue has a reflection Mark wrote about his cancer journey, which we'll talk about in this episode. He's known as a trusted fly fishing writer, including a best-selling book called So Many Fish, So Little Time. But Mark has also spent a good chunk of his career as an educator at North Heights Alternative School in Amarillo. And he loved that work until a really complicated and dramatic health situation forced him to retire. So I've wanted to have Mark on the show since before he got sick. And, uh, well, I I waited till he got better. I'm glad that he's in a place now where we can talk. So here's Mark D. Williams. Mark Williams, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. You're, uh, You're one of those guests who has been on my radar for a long time. I've wanted to interview you. I knew the timing was not great for a few years, <laughs> yeah. um, and we'll talk about that. So I, uh, I'm grateful that you're here. I'm glad uh, that, that we figured out this is a good time for us to talk, and I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests, and that's to ask why you're here? in yeah. Amarillo. I know you're yeah. a listener. I know yeah. you know what's coming. Yep. So how did you end up coming to Amarillo? You know, it's interesting because I never thought I would end the, the closest I'd ever been to Amarillo living was in Odessa. When I grew up, my dad was an engineer, and he worked for H.B. Zachary Company, and he spent a year to a year and a half building power plants wherever we went. So we started in Dallas, and we went to Austin, Lake Jackson, uh, uh, San Antonio, all over Texas, and even Puerto Rico, which was amazing for four years. So I'd lived all over, but we'd never spent much time in the Panhandle. Odessa was the closest I'd ever wanted to get to the Panhandle. I thought it was all the same. Still kind of West Texas, it's a but more not, Texas, not yeah. the Panhandle. I didn't understand it at the time, though. So... I married Amy, and Amy's from Amarillo. She's class of 84 Caprock. Okay. She spent two years at Amarillo High and decided she wanted to go to Caprock, so she graduated Caprock 84. And I met her at Texas A&M. I was going through graduate school, as John <laughs> Irving puts it, and I was a TA, and she was not one of my students, but uh, she was dating one of my students. And so we ended up uh, marrying and living in Dallas for four or five years, and one day there was... It with two factors. Traffic. We lived 15 miles north of downtown. We had a family business that I was running, and uh, we had black ice. Mm. And you combine those two in Dallas, it took me six and a half hours wow. to get home to drive those 15 miles. And I walked in and I said, babe, I don't know anything about Amarillo, but let's start planning to move there. I can't do this any longer. So we ended up in Amarillo. I didn't know Amarillo. When I first met Amy, she used to talk about cherry limes. I had no idea what a cherry lime was yeah. or a Mexican pylon. And when we moved here, I found out, too, that I was severely lacking in my skills of knowing to save eight seconds by driving through a neighborhood, you know, the back route. Very important. Very, very Amarillian. Um, And over a quarter century, this is by far the longest I've ever lived in one place. Hmm. And um, it's my home now. Amarillo is my home. You mentioned the family business in uh, in the Metroplex area. What, What was that? 
In the Metroplex area, my grandparents and my uncle owned a printing company slash graphic arts company. Okay. And so we did uh, embossing dies and foil stamping dies. And we also did, back when you would do four-color stripping for the Dallas Times-Herald and Dallas Morning News, we'd, they'd bring in their ads, and, and we'd set the type, and we'd strip the, the ads and everything. This is old-school stuff yeah. back in I the mean, day. I, cyan and everything. You probably I worked in that yeah. world in yeah. the late 90s at, at Traft and Printing, and so yeah. very familiar with it. I was there as it was starting to transition away from plates into more digital stuff. Yes, exactly. And one of the reasons I eventually left the family business was – it, it was in, inordinately expensive to recapitalize and, and to change. And also there was a for my grandparents who were in their sixties and seventies, it was it was hard to change something that that's what you knew. Yeah. And you got this, you know, youngster grandson saying we need to do this and that. It, and in the end, uh, you know, it ended up killing off the business. Okay. Because yeah, they, they couldn't transition. It was a technology that had been the same for a long time. For a long time. Since and then the there 30s. Was rapid change. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Overnight almost. And, you know, that's another reason I came here. When I was in Dallas, family business afforded me the opportunity to spend a lot of times, 200 days a year, out on the streams. I was hmm. doing fishing riding and outdoors and stuff. And then I was also, I got lucky and became a sports rider uh, in, in that area. I would say that I'm not proud of it, but I secretly am proud. The way that that went about was, in 1992, I approached the Texas Rangers about doing an article on Juan Gonzalez, who was their MVP-winning outfielder. He was from Puerto Rico. He was from the same locale that I had lived for four years. We spoke the same regional kind of Puerto Rican accent, uh, dialect and everything. So I approached him and not thinking there's a chance, because I wanted to be a writer. I'm I'm a Q. I'm an author, Mm -hmm. and I write, and I wanted to be a writer. So I called up and they said, I tell you what, if you can be out here at two o'clock, we'll hook you up with him. I didn't have any questions. I didn't have a clue. So I go out there, I, I scribble some questions down and I meet the, the handler because the Texas Rangers were one of the few clubs that had a lot of uh, Latin American ballplayers. And so they had a handler, Luis Mayoral. And I met with him. I got to meet uh, Pudge. I got to meet Sosa. I got to meet Rafael all over the year. I mean, I got to meet them all. But at that particular moment, Juan and I bonded. And so for the next four days, I spent interviewing uh, Juan Gonzalez Hmm. about everything. And so then I reversed it, and I got a hold of Sport Magazine, back when magazines were still alive. And I said, hey, I'm a sports writer here in Dallas, and I've got this great interview with Juan Gonzalez. Would you like to buy it? And they bought it. And from that point on, I snuck in through the back door of the sports writing world okay. and started writing for national magazines and Dallas Morning News and everything. So it was a lot of fun. And that's always kind of been a – do you consider that a side gig through your career? Because you've done other things. You've been a teacher. Yeah. Uh, you've owned businesses. You've always been writing books, writing freelance, doing all that kind of stuff. If you talk to anybody who has been around for any period of time, they'd say, I consider everything kind of a side gig. Okay. Because I – if I do it, I want to go do something else. I don't ever want to get stuck doing that one thing. So whenever I became a sports writer and, and got all the outdoor gigs and stuff, I wanted more. So I started a, a, a map company and just different things. I'm always, what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. So they're all side gigs. Uh, kind of. A serial entrepreneur. A serial entrepreneur, exactly. Who's yeah. got uh, this this writing thing as sort of the, the stable part. Well, I don't know if you, but, were yeah. you like this? I wanted to write, I grew up, I wanted to write the Great American Novel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm only sixty three. I still have some time. I uh, I wrote mine in the nineties, shopped it around, never got any traction. So that great American novel is still sitting in a closet. That, that's how I first got to know you. Was um, I can't remember which book it was, but we moved to Amarillo, and it was either the Twelve Religions book or the 
little book about the big book mm-hmm. or the apocalypse book. I can't remember. And I, I didn't even know it was local. And I, and I bought it and I was, cause I was still wrestling with the angels and, and I bought your book and read it. And lo and behold, you're from Amarillo and here I am in Amarillo. I, I got to tell you, moving from, cause I've lived in all the big cities in Texas. Amarillo is the most unique place that nobody knows about. Mm-hmm. I fought it for a long time. I thought it was ugly. Uh, I thought it was small minded. I thought it was conservative. I had no idea the depths, the complications, the layers. It is by far the most service oriented community I've ever been around. Mm-hmm. And I've lived in 44 different places. Wow. Okay. And so, I mean, we're, it is unbelievable. Um, it is the most community minded place I've ever lived. And I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's a, Small city with a with a big heart, with a big city kind of mentality. Look at it. You know, you uh, you had an, a guest that talked about it, Wigans. Catherine Wigand. She's amazing. Wigand. And she was talking about how how fortunate we are, and I didn't realize all this, the the art, the music, the the culture. And hey, look, you've been involved with the murals and, and so on. Just the way that Amarillo, every time I, because one of your questions is, um, what could Amarillo hope to have more of and yeah. those things. And every time along the 25 years I've been here that I hoped something would, they would get it, they did it. Uh, all of a sudden, Amarillo College, which was one of the most under, I, I taught there for a while in education. And it was, everybody I ran into was a teacher that, that should have taught at a bigger school somewhere yeah. else. WT, the same way when I went through the PACE program, and I couldn't believe the quality of education I was getting. Every time I wished that Amarillo had something or did something or needed something, lo and behold, you get the downtown renovation or uh, you know, it's just amazing what Amarillo finds it needs and then just solves its own problems. I think that's a unique perspective. I, I like hearing that. I, I want to ask about two parts of your life that I think if local people know your name, this is why they know you. One of those is fly fishing, which yes. you've mentioned. The other is teaching. You talked about the PACE program, and I know you spent years teaching it at North Heights. So let's start with fly fishing. Okay. You wrote about that for a long time, Amarillo Globe News. Um, you are known by the fly fishing community here um, because you've written so many books about it. I mean, you are a legit expert in it. Yes. Amarillo is not a fly fishing <laughs> destination. We all know. So tell me, t- I mean, you had that fascination uh, from what I gather when you were in Dallas. So tell me yeah. where that came from and and how you came to embrace it the way that you have. There's a lot here to to unpack. When I was in college, I went to Texas A&M. That was my, I turned down an appointment to West Point. My dad was very happy because he was an Aggie. His brothers were Aggies. Um, everybody knew we knew were Aggies. He wanted me to be an Aggie, and that's why I turned it down. So, <laughs> um, so I went and I was in the Corps of Cadets. And after the first year, I no longer wanted to be in the Corps of Cadets, but I had a very John Wayne sort of dad. And you didn't tell him something that he didn't want to hear. So I did something that was that was wild and crazy. Uh, I quit each semester for two semesters. And I got in my car and I traveled to see Civil War battlefields and I slept by rivers and I met crazy people I should probably shouldn't have been talking to. And it opened my eyes. I'd grown up in a small uh, uh, conservative household, uh, evangelical churches, don't drink, don't don't look at these people, don't talk to those people. And um, and I think that it it helped construct my Velton Sean. Okay. You know, my worldview was created that. One of the one of the great things about Civil War battlefields is most of them were by rivers. I'd never fly fish. I fished. I grew up fishing Cedar Creek Lake all over Texas. My grandpa, my papa that I love so much, he was a big fisherman. Um, but I picked up a fly rod and found out that you could fool fish with feathers, and I was hooked. Hmm. And so that became a lifelong passion of, of learning how to fly fish, 
the, the beauty of fly fishing is much like golf. You can play the same hole five days in a row and it plays different every time. And you're never going to get good enough that you're good at, that you're satisfied. You go through phases. And and the phase I've gone through before I got cancer, the phase I'd gone through was I want to teach, I want I don't even have to catch a fish. Jason, if you and I went out to um we went up to Big Blue at Lake City mm-hmm. and you were so so. And I saw ways that I could help you enjoy the sport more, not necessarily catch more fish or bigger fish. It depends on what your goals yeah. were. That would be what made my day, what made my trip was to help you and help everybody that I could do better. So I got lucky. Um, everybody told me that you needed to write about fly fishing and outdoors and you need to pay your dues and, and, and get a newspaper gig and all that. And I've always kind of looked at things like, um, well, that's for everybody else. So I wrote up a proposal and it started back in the, in the 1980s when I would go do these Civil War battlefields. I started keeping notes on rivers everywhere I went. So I started traveling the country with a secret. Every time I went somewhere, it would go to be to fly fish for trout. I love trout. Trout live in the prettiest places. Yeah. So that became yeah. my thing. So I wrote all these notes down. And before long, I had a compendium of, I don't know, a thousand pages. I would read John Gurak and I would read Lefty Cray and I would read all these books. And I'm a map guy and I'm a geography guy and a history guy. And it all just kind of formed a perfect union. So I pitched a book. Um, and I sent it off. It was called the Trout Fishing Source Book: Where to Fish in All Forty Seven States That Have Fly Fishing or Have Trout Fishing. There are three that don't. Most people don't realize it, but Hawaii does. Hawaii has in Koki State Park in Kauai, um, up in the mountains, because they have snow. Yeah, they have year-round snow up there. Um, they have you can fish for trout at Koki okay. State Park. So I wrote the I wrote this proposal. I sent out to five publishers and three within because back then you didn't have email. It was still before internet. Uh, I got back three of the five wanted to buy the book. Wow! And I made a spectacular deal for five hundred dollars with no royalties for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and I shouldn't have done it. But Sounds I like did. some of my book deals. Yeah, and so you understand. So uh, Trout Source Book was the first book that I sold, and a local they wrote about it in the Dallas Morning News about this book, and a local agent David Smith saw me. And he got a hold of me and said, I'm brand new. And if you want to go along for the journey, let's let's do it together. And he's been my agent now for 30 some wow. odd years. Okay. To do 20, I've done 20 books. 15 of them have been on uh, on fly fishing, trout fishing. Talk to me about the location of Amarillo as a home base for somebody like you who I mean, fly fishing is going to involve travel, but yeah. luckily we are within a, a short drive of some of the best places in the United States for it. So tell me about that. When I went in to tell Amy after the black ice incident, that we were moving to Amarillo, there was a a secondary motive. I was going to be four hours away from my beloved mountains. Uh, you know, I could get to to Taos and I could get to Durango and Pagosa and all those kind of places. You know, what's interesting about Amarillo, I used to come up here and do uh, shows and presentations all the time. I remember this one thing. This is weird. I don't know if we're supposed to mention other names, but the Durettes even had me come up one time because I had written about Spain, fly fishing Spain and <laughs> France, and they had me come up and talk to them personally. Uh, about it. And I think they ended up going and having a great trip and fly fishing there and everything. It was really interesting. So stuff is to say, Amarillians, you say there's no fly fish around here, but Amarillians fly fish and trout fish. I have yet to meet an Amarillian who has not got some family legacy to Lake City or Creed, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's from the 1930s and 40s. I guess it's hot here and it's dusty and the dads have just loaded them up and you go up there to Lake City and you see other uh, Oklahomans there and you go to Red River and 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 you have your and you fill a cooler full of fish and then you have family you know get-togethers. 
Um, I like Amarillo because I can get to some of the best places to fish. And I'm going to save that. Okay. Ready, but okay. Also, Amarillo had a good airport. And people don't think it does, but it, it did have a, a good airport where I could catch Dallas or I could go out of L.A. Or my The biggest book I ever wrote was called So Many Fish, So Little Time. And it was a thousand and one best places to fish on earth. It took me 25 years to write. Um, and that's back in the day, Jason, which is interesting. They don't have this anymore. It's Well, you got to be an influencer or a content creator. But you used to get solicited all the time by people um, in chambers of commerce and tourism divisions who would want to comp you. They would pay for your flight there, pay for your accommodations, pay for your guides. They wanted this. You didn't have all the digital ways to to find your way into print to advert to you know to have supplemental advertising. So if you if if you had me come to the Bahamas, and I wrote a seven page piece on you, you couldn't buy that kind of exposure. Yeah, yeah. So it was worth it in their budget to have me flying all over the world writing about these things, and and so I would do that in the summers when I was here started teaching. But back in in Dallas, I would just do it anytime they asked me. Okay. So but, I was I was lucky enough to be able to go all over the place. My especially when I got to Amarillo for the last 25 years has been the Southwest because it's so easy to leave Amarillo and and we think nothing of driving eight or ten hours. Yeah, you know you're going to go to Conejos and it takes eight hours. Well, let's just leave it four. We'll you know we'll stop in Dalhart or you know yeah be on the river by noon. Exactly right. Yeah. Let's talk about the teaching career. How'd you find your way into that? I didn't have a job and I and my set of skills. Were, were not going to be transferable when I moved to Amarillo. And there wasn't a lot of options in business. I decided I want to get back to teaching. I had taught, you know, at A&M, and then I taught at Cook County Junior College in, in North Texas. And so they had a program where it was emergency certification. And it was, uh, I could either, I taught to two different principals, and I could either teach at Horace Mann or Travis Middle School. Okay. Jay, and, Jay Barrett and I connected, and Jay hired me over the phone. Um, Amy was nervous cause she already had a job here, uh, with Sleepy Hollow, but I didn't, I didn't have a job until we were basically packed and driving here. I got a job on the, on the car basically. Okay. On the phone? On the phone. Yeah. So Travis middle school with my first 10 minutes, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Middle schoolers are not human. Uh, it's just amazing. The smells and sounds that came out of them. But within the first 10 minutes, I had turned my back and Dolores was um, fighting with Esmeralda, and I'd never seen two girls fight ever in my entire life. I was 40 years old. So it was a big wake-up call. What I found out through teaching three years at Travis Middle School and then tw- uh, 20 years at North Heights was that I had never understood people that weren't like me. Hmm. I had developed the bad habits of judging them, uh, of blaming them. And through training and everyday interaction and community awareness and just and just living these kids' lives, I learned about the the poverty cycles and I learned about their transactional nature and I learned about how things that I grew up with that I thought were tough, I hadn't seen anything compared to these kids that that they could show up that day and I'm going to give them a hard time for not having a pencil and what they've gone through. Yeah, I wasn't going to play that way. So what was interesting about going into North Heights, it was an alternative school. Mm -hmm. So it's for at-risk kids, and they came from every high school. Uh, It wasn't just the bad kids. These were kids who, for whatever reason, were having trouble in traditional class. A lot of times it might be family-oriented. Most of the times it was. I came to education not already being steeped in traditional education practices. 
So I brought real world solutions to my classroom and I brought my Mark Williamsness. And what that meant was it was going to ruffle some feathers, but I was so lucky that I had Mark Leach as my principal and I had uh, an array of, of fellow teachers and staff. Everybody was important at, at North Heights who saw the benefit in saying to each and every student, you're important. We see you, you mean something and we're not going to, we're not going to quit on you like you've had in your life. We're not quitting. As a matter of fact, what we did was we developed idiosyncratic, differentiated lesson plans for you. Everybody learns differently. You know, when you get a driver's license, they don't ask how you got to, to know your knowledge to be able to get certified to get that license. So that's the approach I took to each and every kid. Some Because it was self-paced. Some students may take the whole semester to be able to do something. And some might be able to do three semesters in that one semester. But the way we get there to the end to be certified, that everybody's going to be different. Right. Everybody's got a different learning style. So we were able to match up curriculum with your learning style. So let's say you come in, you're a tough Mexican kid, you're having to work um, 40 hours a week, and you don't want to be here. You already want to go ahead and get a job. My goal is to reach you, to build a relationship with you, to make you trust me so that you value the education that I can give you. And some of it's real world. I've got real world experience. I'm not a teacher who's been there since age 22. I've lived some life. Mm-hmm. And, and they luckily, they recognize my uniqueness and my, my oddness as, as a teacher. Well, I wasn't like any teacher they'd seen. I got to know more about rap music than I ever wanted to know. And I, but I took it as a point of pride. I, I would go study the rap music. I would go to different clubs around town uh, and, and watch these kids play music and, and, and the concerts that they had the refuge and all these different places I would go to I went, because there was no better way when a kid sat across from me. And I did something interesting. When a, when a student first entered my room, we sat down and talked like you and I are talking 15, 20 minutes, might be 30 minutes. And we worked together. If we formed a learning partnership on how we were going to approach what we did with you, was there things, were there things that, um, that I held back that, that they didn't know that I was doing. Sure, that's like dad tricks, right? You do yeah. dad tricks with your kids and stuff. Um, but for the most part, we were open and honest, and they bought into that. Kids, I, of the thousands I taught, and when they came to my, my aid on the cancer, all of them say this one basic thing, is you saw me. Hmm. Which means to old people that you respected me, you listened to me, you gave validity to my opinion, and so on. So at North Heights, what we accomplished I think we were the best alternative school in the nation. Awards, other alternative schools coming to see what we did so they could emulate it and so on. We integrated curriculum and matched it with technology and gave the kids the... You remember, Jason, when you were growing up and you would have a group project and your teacher would put you in the group and you would do all the work? Absolutely. Or she would say she wanted you to do this, but she would tell you how she wanted you to do it. It's not the way we did it. We uh, the thing I'm most proud of is we did an app called um, Sleep, Eat, and Shop uh, Amarillo. Okay, and it was a the first professionally done app by students in America. We were at Sutro Media. It took 300 kids to put that thing in two years together, hmm. and they got to go out. and We didn't tell them how to do it, and we had different leaders who would graduate, and they would they would it was their job as peers to to train the next group that was going to be taken over. So when we brought that puppy to, to publication, I had, I had hundreds of kids that were there that got up to present to the Chamber of Commerce, to the TV channels, to everything, because they'd all had a part in it. Yeah. 
You know, they and 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 they learn so much more. Think about the value of that. Going out into your community and talking to businesses and taking pictures and interviewing their owners and then having to go back and be responsible for writing it up in a way that conveys that information to a user. And then the technology involved, the commerce involved. And so if you're working on that app where where to sleep and, and shop and eat, you might be working with six teachers on that of, of North Heights for different credits that you could get. Uh, it was just invaluable. And so we did a lot of projects. We did digital books. Um, you know, there's a thing later where you're talking about what's your favorite coffee shop. Mine was paparazzi. One day, one of the students, Alex Albrock, said, well, why don't we have a coffee shop here? They have met some of these other high schools. I said, okay. So we put together a team. And when I say that, I told Alex, put together a team. And she got 12 kids. And we met with um, David Terry out of WT Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And then we went to go pitch Happy State Bank. And all it was was a mock pitch. And they ended up giving us thousands of dollars and being a partner. You know, Mark Leach and I never wanted the kids. It wasn't about the money or the water bottles or recognition. We wanted that, which you see at Amtec now. Yeah. You know, that's another thing when you talk about what do you want to see in the future for Amarillo. I wanted to see that, and it became it came to fruition. And I'm very proud of Amtec and what Jay Barrett, my, yeah. you know, what he's doing. But at the time, it, you know, it was all kind of new and raw, and it was hard to get things past with ASD because they'd never seen this before. How do you? How do we? If you get a book and it goes on Amazon, um, and we had several books that did really well, sold tens of thousands of dollars worth of books. It was their stories. Paintings on the wall was one of them. What do you do with the money? How do you handle it? They'd never seen this before. It mm-hmm. wasn't just like a, you know, we're going to hold a, a bake sale in the gym. It wasn't like that. This is digitized and with Amazon, and there's it's an ongoing enterprise. But paparazzi became the coffee shop that lasted seven years till it finally just petered out, and that's fine. It's the kids' coffee shop, and they decided the menu, and they had to buy things, and they had to learn about management and, and you know, stocking and all these kinds of things. Giving these kids chances that they didn't have in traditional school I hate that I had to retire because of cancer. Yeah. Officially speaking, what were the subjects that you taught? Well, what was your wheelhouse there? My wheelhouse is a, is like everything else in life. So uh, I started off teaching uh, English, but that included journal. I was certified in, jur- in journalism and speech and multimedia. We lost our history teacher, and so I went and got certified for um, all the social studies so I taught history, economics, sociology, psychology, all the different sciences that way. And I'm just one of those book guys, you know. Mm-hmm. I love it, I, you know. So for half my time there, I taught English and multimedia. I had a studio built. We got with um, a McDonald's, the uh, people down in Canyon. They helped build a studio in my room. And so we would do commercials. We did Stop Film Fest. We did the West Texas a Film Festival. We did all the film festivals. And... The kids learned how to win awards, and they learned how to make good commercials. And so we even had a, the first news they, with Holly um, Shelton. They, they formed a news organization. They would go around, and then they would uh, do two-minute shorts and do the news for the ASD. Mm-hmm. That was, my kids were doing that first. We had a studio, and we had cameras, and, and it was all cutting edge. And we didn't know what we were doing at the time, but they took after me. We'll figure it out. You've, you've mentioned the cancer journey which uh, I think a lot of people who do know you have followed you along that lengthy path, you know, that, that you've, you've reached a, I guess, a, ho- a hopeful point in it at this point. So 
Talk me through that and, and kind of tell that story for listeners. I was 58 and very healthy. I could go and hike 15 miles in a day and wade and fish and camp and pride myself on that. But I could tell something was wrong. Something wasn't acting right. And Dr. Alan Keister, Heal the City, he was my physician. He found, um, uh, we got, I had some gallbladder problems and he did some scans and he found that I had a huge mass. He said, it isn't good. So he got me with an oncologist the next day and he said, this isn't good. And it was uh, at the time a grapefruit size mass and it had encased my vascularity and my pancreas and I, my, my midsection was just covered in this nonsense. So they, um, they operated within a couple of months and opened me up and it was just, there was no way to do anything right. I bled out. They were just, hmm. uh, you couldn't even tell from all the, you know, MRIs and scans and everything what was, went until you got in there. And so they went out to the waiting room and, and told my wife and my daughter and my friends and my family, uh, y'all need to start making plans. We got about a year, maybe two, but it's, it's going to, it's just nothing we can do. Well, I didn't like that answer, so we got a hold of MD Anderson with their cancer magic. Went down there, and whew, this isn't good, but I tell you what, we got some things we'll try. We'll try chemo first. We tried five rounds of chemo, didn't shrink it whatsoever. And it was a, the, the problem was, was it was a rare and unique kind of um, uh, cancer. It was, it's a neuroendocrine tumor is what it's called, and it can attack the pancreas or the stomach or your, whatever. It can go anywhere. It doesn't matter. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't care where it goes. Uh, but but they don't really have any ways that they know to to kill it to to get rid of it. Once you get rid of it, you're still not NED. You still will continue to have it the rest of your life. It's just more manageable because it's slow growing. When they found the big mass inside of me, they thought I'd probably had it in 10, 12 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't notice all the symptoms like diabetes. All of a sudden, I'm 58 and I'm a diabetic one just overnight. Uh, which was God's way of having fun with me because I'm deathly scared of needles. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm talking about... I'm so a, here, inject yourself every day. Right? Every single day. Let's do it three times a day. How about it? Let's start off with that and just see how you like it. And so that was funny. Uh, so we get to Andy Anderson, and after a while, nothing's working, and they've got the same sort of plan, which is um, more palliative, more hospice-oriented. Mm-hmm. Make you comfortable. Yeah, make you comfortable. And, uh, well, okay. So I had, I had some decisions to make. How do I want to handle this? You know, I'd read the book Tuesdays with Maury, and what a what a noble individual. How I've lived a lot of ennoble times in my life. I'd like to go out, you know, on my, on my, on my shield. So how can I do this? Plus, I have a responsibility to all these students who I've told, you know, about being strong and about resiliency and about nobility and all these kinds of lessons I've tried teaching them. Maybe my lesson needs to be for me, um, money where my mouth is. Plus, I'll tell you this. So one of the things that struck me was, let's say that I was in an amorphous, unborn state, and someone came to me in this in this aura and said, would you like to go to Earth and experience all that you can about Earth? I'm talking about love and pain and suffering and beauty and mountains and everything. Yeah, I'm in for the whole package. Let's do it. And so in a weird way, I don't mind this to sound maudlin, I thought, I'm going to embrace this suffering and I'm going to see what it's all about. I've seen other people suffer. My dad died at 62 from cancer. My papa that I love so much at 88. They all sat there and just withered away. And they did things that were both noble and some things I don't want to do if I get to that point. So how am I going to handle this? Because I'm a writer. I get to write my story. I get to, to create this narrative. What narrative do I want to create? So 
I decided I wanted to go out where I could share as much as I could, mm -hmm. but I also didn't want to have pity and I didn't want to whine. If I was going to do that, I was going to do it in the secrecy of my own home and not tell anybody. Yeah. And it was, there were nights when Feel the Dreams comes on and you're watching it and you just start boohooing because there's the dad. I didn't have a good relationship with my dad. I'm, I'm not jealous or envious, but I love it when I see guys like you that had a good relationship with their dad. Um, so anything that would be dad related, you know, was, was a trigger. I would be listening to music and a song would come on. And it might even be something as stupid as Kung Fu fighting or The Night Chicago Died, and it might trigger something. Uh, and then I would go down the rabbit hole of, of YouTube music, music that meant something to me. Or I might read a passage in, in, a, in a book of poems, and, and all of a sudden I'm lost in that. And so what I was trying to find was a center. I knew my moral center, but what's my center of behavior for all this? Uh, my center of behavior was, I'm going to be the wise old fool who's dying, who can convey as much of this process to my friends and family and students as I can. A friend of mine told me the other day, he says, man, you were all primed and ready to die. You kind of feel like you missed out on that. In a way, yeah. Now I've got to, I've got to re-narrate the next Yeah, No, but you're phase. a storyteller, a and story you took ownership of that story and exactly told right. it. Yeah. So I, it's in the summer a couple years ago, and I get a phone call, and it's from one of the doctors down at MD Anderson. We've gotten with some engineers, and we, because the problem was the vascular of it all. All, all the blood carrying instruments in my midsection were encased with this tumor. Mm -hmm. And so there was no way to remove it all because it was just a part of the blood vessels and the arteries and everything like that. They came up with a way that they ended up taking my jugular vein out and they took some other massive veins and they just they rerouted everything and then they took out the mass. Okay. So I wasn't going to bleed out. They, they said, look, we've never done this before. We think we can do this. You might not make it. But if you make it, you're probably not going to die of neuroendocrine tumors. And I thought, well, I thought I was going to die anyway. So, yeah, let's do this, sucker. Let's, let's do it. And if I die, I get the added nobility prize of, hey, he was the guinea pig for everybody else on yeah. the surgery. So it was okay. And I'm not scared of dying. I wasn't scared of dying then. I'm not scared of dying now. I think sometimes I'm scared of living. You know, the living part is is a lot from the everything I saw with all my kids. The the living part's a lot harder. You know, when we used to go to MD Anderson, I was weighing one fifty five, one sixty, and that was down from one eighty. And we would see these poor people in their wheelchairs, and they were all skinny, and they'd lost hair, and they were slumped over. And Amy and I would talk and say, "I hope that's not me one day." God, look at that! It feels so sorry. They're in the last stages. Well, when I went down there for my surgery, there was no doubt in my mind when they were looking yeah. at me what they were thinking. I was, uh, was weighing 130, 140. I was slumped over. I had lost hair from chemo. I was one of those people. And I recognized it. It was, it was hard not to recognize. So they did the surgery. It was 14 hours. They lost me three times. They did three transfusions. Uh, when I woke up, I had lost all hearing. I don't have hearing on my left side anymore. I have neuropathy. It was all these kinds of side effects, but I woke up. Yeah. I was alive. And as a matter of fact, I, I recovered so quickly they couldn't believe it. And then it, then the worst part, so a month later, they're ready to send me home, and I get C. diff, which is a, a digestive, I don't know what you call it, but anyway, I got sick. And from that point on, it was like a domino effect of things. The stomach started leaking because they'd had to take half my stomach. 
And I want to, I want to put this out here for any of the, my medical friends or inventors. You can come up with a pig valve for a heart. You can transplant a heart. You can even transplant a brain. You can't give me a stomach with a valve. Yeah. That, that's, that's what's costing me right now, man. Seal I need that a stomach thing up, with a right? valve. Exactly. They took the bottom half that had my good valve. Why'd you take the valve? So anyway, I don't have the valve anymore. And uh, so uh, they took all that out and did, uh, I started going through stomach leaks and it was other leaks that developed. And so I had tubes come out of me everywhere. And it just, every day was a new symptom and a new problem. Uh, it was everything from orthostatic hypotension, which fancy phrase I learned. When I stood up, my blood, what your blood pressure does is it protects itself. It's a great survival instinct. It protected everything that had been surgeried. And so it would remove the blood from my head and my feet, and I would just pass out and hit the floor. Um, that wasn't pleasant. So um, it kept me in a, a variety of things. I was 24-7 nausea, which if you haven't tried it, don't. 24-7 hiccups. The hiccups were the scariest oh. part. Of my entire, I spent six months in the hospital. The hiccups were the worst. Because if you syncopated it just right, when you hiccuped, you couldn't get a breath the next. You couldn't expel a breath, and you couldn't inhale a breath. And it was scary. I mean, it, all of a sudden, you're, you're, I, I didn't mind dying. I wasn't scared to death, but I was afraid of dying. You know, it's like suffocating. Mm-hmm. That was gonna, I was, several times I was suffocating. Amy had to come and help me. So I went through a lot of that kind of stuff, and they didn't have any answers. This was a unique surgery. They'd saved my life. To them, every, everything, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Well, they, they knew the surgery, but they didn't know how to fix me. So we, we took all the cancer out. Your symptoms, we can't explain. So they sent me home after six months, and I kept losing weight. I got down to 112 pounds. Man. I went in to see Dr. Lesby, and he said, dude, if you don't get to back to MD Anderson tomorrow, you may not see the day after. So the air ambulance slew me down. I went back, we rehabbed, we got me up to 120 and stabilized, and it's been sort of a battle ever since. I'm happy I did it. But there are days, there are hours where I wish that I hadn't. And I think that that's, it's important to let people know that, that any of these kind of journeys, any of these kind of sufferings, it's okay to have cognitive dissonance. You, know, you can hold two views on it. Yeah, I'm glad I'm alive. I'm glad I'm going to see my grandkids and I'm going to be there for my other students. I'm going to, I'm going to find the next chapter in my life to write. But there are days because I, because they took everything out basically where just eating during the day is, I have to eat a lot because I, I'm maintaining 139 pounds. If I don't eat much during the day, I'll drop five or six pounds in a day. Wow. I do not want to go back to 112 and mm-hmm. have all that all over again. So every day is a challenge. But I'm a long way from where I was. You've had a diverse career. You've had a career that introduced you to a lot of the different communities and families in Amarillo as a teacher. Um, You went through a very public health journey. Yes. Telling that story along the way. Tell me what you've learned about this community in the process of all those different things, all those different ways that you've interacted with the community. You haven't lived in 44 different places and have traveled the world, and you run into different cultures and cities and places. There's the context of Amarillo is unique, and I don't. I used to give Amy a hard time when we were down at A and M, and she didn't have the good East Texas accent like we had, and um, she seemed more Midwestern than Texan. And when I got here, I found out why. It's because we're uniquely and weirdly isolated. 
we're our own thing. There's no, no, Lubbock's not like us. We're not mm-hmm. like Lubbock. Um, there's no place close that's even like us. And I think that satellite mentality has formed this awareness, this inherent communal urge that we have in this town. I've never seen anything like it. This is my home after you know, living all over for 63 years. Amarillo became my home, and I'm proud to call it home because I remember the first time I took my North Heights kids to do the Evelyn Rivers coats mm-hmm. things, and they brought coats, and they, they started to come up with ideas to do charity, and they started doing backpacks for homeless people, and, then, and it became an ongoing thing at North Heights. We would do our own thing. and um, I had never known that people in need would do so much more for other people in need. It, it, it flabbergasted me. And I found that everywhere I turned in Amarillo, I don't care if you were conservative, Baptist, Catholic, whatever you were, there's something that rises above all that in Amarillo. And you can just look even, let's just look at it monetarily. You look at the people that give in this town and you look at the number of nonprofits and the way that they help, the, everything from from Alan Keister's Heal the City to Dyron Howe to what Chander Perkins does and every, everything. There's not a place like this anywhere in the United States that I know of. Have you? I mean, have you run into this exact no, same thing? No. Is this something you, I'm not just. I mean, there's a reason I still live here too. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine living anywhere else. Now, yes. Do I want to live a summer in Spain? Yes, I do. <laughs> but I, I, this is my home still. I want to maintain a home here because you know, you talk about the good old days. I think we're in them in Amarillo. Amarillo has this steady growth for, what, 20-some-odd years now. It grows at like 2% or whatever. And it, it never gets bigger than it needs to be, but it's always small as it needs to be. It's the biggest, it's the smallest big city I've ever lived in. Everybody knows everybody, and yet you can still accomplish great things here. Antex is as good as any school in, the, in yeah. for its type of any school in the, in the nation. I thought North Heights was. I'll put our people up, and I've said this a lot of times, I'll put our people up against anybody's people. And there's a certain pride, too, of Amarillians that I hadn't recognized until I got here. And, yeah, there's some weird things they're proud of, like 64-ounce drinks. Seriously, do we need? <laughs> do we really need to be drinking that much? But that's beside the point. Um, but I'm proud to be an Amarillian, and I, I can't imagine not living here because of they accepted me, and I became a part of it, and now I'm lucky enough to be a part of it. This episode of Hamarillo is supported by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family. Here's the thing, they offer a lot more at Lazy Boy than just recliners. Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of products in stock they're ready to take home or deliver today. So go visit the showroom at Lazy Boy of Amarillo today at 3636 Sansi. Okay, I'm back with Mark Williams. Mark, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and it's known for its paleontology collection. If you visit that wing, you'll probably be surprised to learn that the Texas Panhandle was once a swampy tropical rainforest, which explains the giant crocodile-like phytosaur on display, as well as the Metoposaurus, which is pretty much a six-foot-long salamander. You can uh, see those and learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of this area 10 years from now, what do you hope for? 
you know, I, I mentioned that every time I hoped for something, it, it kind of came true. AC became a bigger, better school, and it was already a, the best community college I'd ever seen. Uh, you know, it's something, because it's Amarillo and Canyon, I love what Canyon's doing with their downtown. I hope that Amarillo can continue to develop its locations. Okay. You know, we've had some internal strife over the years on these things from 6th Street to, you know, where the big Texan is to downtown and so on. I think there's room for all of it. And I hope I would love to see in 10 years when tourists come through, they have great options okay. on places to go. Um, I also hope that we can keep this small town identity while continuing to grow big city services. And then thirdly, I would like to continue to bring in unique flavors from around the world. I really love it that we've got tapas now, mm -hmm. a Korean. I'd love to keep seeing us get beyond the chicken fried steak and, and chicken strips. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? You know, I don't know that it, I don't know that it has too much anything. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Okay. The, uh, Storage I would like units. to bring five and dimes back. I miss five and dimes, and I think that maybe we need more of those. But that would be fun. Weren't they great going is into that? Is that a nostalgic thing that has gained ground in other places? Like I'm trying well, to think if I've seen the equivalent someplace else. Because you're only fifty, so you may not have gotten to experience the five and dimes like we did. Because were you there for like the White's Auto Store where you could go in and you get a baseball glove, tires, and you know some something else? I mean, no, I, I have specific memories of. Um, TG and Y, yeah, with my yeah, my grandparents, which mm -hmm. was pretty similar to that, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just on the cusp of it like, towards the end. I, I don't know how much of it's nostalgic. I know that I also miss green stamp stores. Those yeah, are great. You I can read those. those and um, drugstore counters where you could go order like a, a cherry phosphate and get a, a great patty melt. So those are things I'd like to bring back. Yeah, uh, you know. So okay, what does this area not have enough of? All right, so Ms. Wigand brought this up, and I think she's right. We are a medical hub. You even mentioned that in your interview with her, that you knew us to be a medical hub. I would love to not have to go to MD Anderson. It's real disruptive. Um, we have great doctors here. We just don't have enough of them. Like, I'm trying to get in to see different neurologists now, and I've got to, you know, and it's going to take months. And it sh we're big enough, it shouldn't have to take months for me to, to go see a neurologist. And there's also then specialty type um, things like she mentioned dermatologist, and I don't know anything about that. But there are other types of doctors I I would love to have seen here that I wouldn't I didn't have to go fly to Houston for okay. that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you've uh, used Amarillo as a home base for a lengthy fly fishing career, and you talked about the places that are within a day's drive. So, what's your favorite place to fish within uh, a reasonable drive from Amarillo? And this is a question just for you. It's not a typical eight straight question. I don't want anybody, I'm going to tell y'all, but I don't want any of y'all to go here <laughs> to any of these places. We'll delete this as soon as you say <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. I love Vidal. It is a um, several hundred thousand uh, unit in northern New Mexico. Um, and it is, it's a, a caldera. It's a collapsed volcano. And there are as many as eight streams running through it. Um, three primary streams. And it's the Rio Castilla is the mainstream. And it has real grand cutthroat. They're rare. And it's just the most beautiful. It's the closest thing looks-wise to Yellowstone National Park. Mm, yeah. Um, but I love that. I love the Upper Rio Hondo. We've had places in Taos and Durango. And so I, those are, I consider day trips. I love the Upper Rio Hondo as you're going up to Taos Ski Valley. 
because uh, you can what I like about it is it's small and intimate and it's covered in like a tunnel of trees so you, once you get out in it you don't notice the traffic and you you own it whatever the, the mile stretch or two mile stretch you have I love the Cimarron and I know the Cimarron's tough and a lot of fly fishers don't like it because they get hung up I like it because it's tough yeah that, that's the very reason I like it just to throw this out here if you're going to take a flight because I get asked this for 30 years now if you could get a, if someone gave you a plane ticket and you could go anywhere in the world right now where would you go to go fly fishing hands down not even close it's Spain hmm. Why Spain? Spain is approximates so much of the landscape and geology and geography of America and adds its own thing. Plus, then you have the culture. Plus, you have the people. Plus, you have the food. And plus, there's nobody else fishing over there. That's what's amazing. So the first time I ever went over there 25 years ago, I fished with Mariano. And it's not a guide like you get here. He's smoking cigarettes and he's fishing with me. And we fish all day until he, we get to this. I didn't even know we we're going to end up here. There's this little stone shack that looks like the Etruscans made it in the sixth century. And a guy's, a buddy of his is there and they are cooking up steaks for us that he had picked out a cow previous week and slaughtered just for us. Mm. So we're eating this fresh cow and we go back to his house and we have drinks. And his pregnant wife is smoking. There's just no experience like that. <laughs> but the, it's pristine, and the fish are beautiful and wild, and there's no place else like it in the world. Okay. Well, I'll put yeah. it on the list then. There you go. What's your favorite local coffee shop? You mentioned the one at North Heights. Yeah, Paparazzi's was my favorite. I was so proud of the kids. So after surgery and after chemo, my taste buds changed. I don't drink anything hot anymore, so I All gave right. up coffee. I was a coffee nut. I had coffee all day, every day. For 30 years, I went to 806 to see kids play and do, um, you know, spoken poetry and, and just different things. And I went to the I used to love the old roasters mm-hmm. back in the day. But I, I used to meet people for business at roasters all the time. And then I'd palace. I'd go down. I'd go meet people at palace. So I, I can't pick. You know, they're all three great. Uh, so if you'd asked me 20 years ago, Mark, what would you wish we could have in 10 years? A better coffee house culture. We got that. We got it. We got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got, it matches other, I mean, other legit places you're going to go. It used to not be, but it is now. So I can't pick one. Okay. I'll I'll allow that then. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? I used to make fun of coming from Dallas and Austin and and Houston and San Antonio. I used to make fun of the offerings that we had in, in Amarillo, but it's improved over the last 15 years. It's really, really good food. So, Golden Light was an old favorite of mine, mm-hmm. uh, largely from memory, but uh, but they make a great burger and good fries, and it's good people, and you know that. But if I'm going to pick, I used to love Beale Bistro, which they hadn't got oh, out yeah. of business. That was a go-to yep. place. Um, but I'm going to pick Mexican. So I like El Tejaban, Flamingos, and El Manantial. Okay. And I can't pick one. All good choices? Yes. Flamingos is a little bit different from the other two because it, it reminds has, me of Puerto Rico because yeah, it, cause it brings more, in the Latino. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Caribbean and other places. Yeah, exactly. Okay, what's your favorite street in Amarillo? I live in Wolfwyn and I go I, I walk a lot and we have beautiful houses and streets and so on. But my favorite street is 6th Street. My mother and sister and I, about six or seven years ago, um, started a business there. We started a bookstore slash antique store mm-hmm. on the corner of 6th and McMaster's. We fell in love with Sixth Street, the culture, the bustle, everything about it, the people. You know, it's it's there's no other place like it in a city like this. Um, so Sixth Street's my favorite street. Okay. And last question: When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? When my kids were putting together the um, 
the Amarillo Tourism app. Uh, we used to go out there and see Bobby Lee quite a bit. So it's probably been at least a decade. I, okay. I don't know a lot of Amarillians. Maybe they did go out there. I, For me, it's sort of like Cadillac Ranch. I love that we have it, and I love to send people there, but I just don't go myself. Okay. And that's why I ask about it, because yeah. I, I think the experience of going there as a local is always yeah. a little bit rare, which it, is strange. It is. And it's you know it's good food. When I've gone, I like it. It's good food. Yeah. Good atmosphere. I just, I don't know. I don't go. Okay. Uh, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? You know, we have the, the greatest nonprofit per capita anywhere, I think. And there are two outfits that are doing great work. One of you have been interviewed and uh, uh, StoryBridge, Chandra Perkins, okay. what she's doing there. I'm a reader. I'm a writer. And one of the things I used to do with all my students was trick them into reading. And they, I wanted them to become lifetime readers because reading was so important. It's important for a number of reasons. And, and what StoryBridge has, has done is fill the gap for these younger kids who, in the most formative parts of their year, the most formative parts of their brain and their learning and their worldview, if they're not reading, they're, they're behind. And they're behind the chance to not just other, to compete. They're behind the chance to have a full and enriched life. Mm-hmm. And what StoryBridge does is it puts books in the hands of kids that don't have books. Yeah. And I just find that so amazing. And Chandra has done, wow, what a great job she's done. Yeah. She's amazing. The other one is High Plains Children's Home. Okay. You know, what they do is they provide emergency and residential services for abused and underprivileged children and adults. And what Chandra's husband, Drew Perkins, does out there, go, flies under the radar a lot of times because we have Boys Ranch and Amarillo Children's Home and so on. Uh, but these are some tough kids. These are kids that are, are, are extreme and they need help. And, you know, I've been out there quite a bit and, and dealt with it. I don't know that this is something I could do daily to deal with the people that have gone through so much trauma um, who make my suffering look pretty minor. Hmm. Uh, and and so I, I think that people need to pay attention to what High Plains Children Home and StoryBridge are doing. All right. Co-sign of both of those. I, exactly I love right. those organizations. Yes. Mark Williams, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate and it. I enjoyed it, Jason. Thanks for finally having me. Well, thanks for still being around. <laughs> and that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Mark for the interview. You can find his books on Amazon. Uh, of course, I've, I've included a link to it, though, in the show notes. And, you know, I, I always recommend if you're shopping for books that you order them locally at bookstores like Burrowing Owl. You can just go in, say, I'm looking for this book. They'll order it for you and then call you when it's ready. That way they get the money and not a giant like Amazon. Thanks to Lazy Boy Home Furnishings and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting this podcast. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it every week. Hey Amarillo exists because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Whitten. This has been episode 339. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.